Greetings friends and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. Our sermon today is cleverly titled, The Upper Hand. Our preacher is preaching from Romans 6 and verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. It's Sermon 901 in the sequence. This week we're reading from 899 to 905, and you can always join us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon to uh, go day by day. But our featured sermon is this one, and it's a, a wonderful blend of uh, conviction and compassion. Now, it's a very simple sermon in some senses. The, the three headings are to use the text as a test, as a promise, and as an encouragement. Spurgeon begins by reminding us that this is a golden sentence given the sad and sorrowful nature of the word sin. Sin is the cause of our everlasting misery unless we're delivered from it. Never has the world seen another tyrant comparable to this. Beneath its dragon wings the light has been eclipsed, life has dwindled, joy has expired. Remember you that fear the Lord and are the servants of Jesus Christ, how many there are that are still the slaves of sin. There is no monarch who rules over so many souls as this tyrant iniquity. But, as a Christian, when we think about what we were as the slaves of sin, it grieves us even in recollection. But now we have the will to shake off that fetter, though once we hugged the chain. Now we abhor the leprosy, but once we accounted the symptoms of our disease to be indications of health and were enamoured of ourselves, notwithstanding our revolting loathsomeness. There was a time, he reminds us, when every affection of our nature went after evil, when we loved not the things of God nor served him. And yet now we are renewed in the spirit of our mind. What unspeakable joy, he says. And it's that that then gives him the foundation for uh, how he's addressing this text. He wants us to remember that uh, we are assured that sin shall not have dominion over us because we're not under the law, but under grace. Should not every soldier fight with dauntless valour, he asks? Should not his spirit, faint and cowed, wax brave in contest with sin, when he hears as the argument of a holy apostle, as the oracle of inspired truth, such a sure word of prophecy, sin shall not have dominion over you. And so that uh, brings us to this uh, threefold application of the text, a test, a promise, and an encouragement. And again, as we go through it, listen for those twin notes of conviction and compassion, because Spurgeon brings uh, the text to bear with pastoral understanding and wisdom on, on the people who are hearing him, and then by extension on us. So he says, first of all, in these words, we have an important test of our profession. If sin does not have dominion over true believers, then we have to ask, does sin have dominion over me? Because if I'm under the reigning power of sin, as opposed to the remaining influence of sin, then I am not a believer. Spurgeon is careful from the off. I didn't say, do you sin? Because if we say we have no sin, according to the Apostle John, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The question is this, does sin have dominion over me? So he warns us that we need to be aware of our deceitful hearts when we're answering this question. 
You may be under the dominion of sin, he says, while yet there may be some forms of vice which you've successfully resisted. But it doesn't matter what kind of transgression enslaves you if you are, after all, in bondage. Whatever sin it may be that is the lieutenant in your heart, it doesn't really matter. You're possessed of the devil. If there's one sin that usurps spiritual authority in your soul, then sin, considered as a whole, has dominion over you. He reminds us that Satan will attack us in different ways, that different people will be subjected to different temptations, that different sins will attract and entice different people. And the question then is, uh, do you sit quietly under the yoke of your sin and cherish that sin as a friend rather than withstand it as a foe? If so, then sin, that sin, has got dominion over you and you're not in Christ not a child of God. And in order to help us answer that question, Spurgeon then picks up some particulars. They are anger and murmuring and covetousness and laziness and pride and uh, sloth or downright idleness and laziness. Now, perhaps if you and I were preaching this today, we might suggest different sins. Uh, Spurgeon, typically Victorian, uh, is quite careful when he's dealing with with uh, lust and sexual sin, but I think a faithful pastor today would at least have to identify that as one of the, the major issues, the major enslaving sins that assaults so many hearts of both men and women in our congregations, and there may be others as well. So Spurgeon's going to give us some case studies of enslaving or dominating sin, and the first would be anger. He says, a man may have a very bad temper and yet be a true Christian, but if any man says, my temper's so bad that I cannot curb it, I do not try to restrain it, for it's impossible to keep it under control, then temper has got dominion over him, and according to my text, he's not a Christian. Only in salvation from sin, he tells us, is there salvation from wrath, uh, our own sinful anger. O oh, sirs, he pleads, I speak the truth of God and lie not in this respect. I have seen the grace of God change lions into lambs. Men of hot and fierce temper have become calm and quiet and gentle. Although the old man has sometimes appeared with his old propensities and they have had to blush for him and bite their lips to keep back the hard word or even to walk away perhaps for fear that they should say something which they know they would be sorry for afterwards, yet they have resisted the vile propensity and prevailed. They have mastered their temper, and so must you. And it's interesting, if you're following along, how often uh, Spurgeon mentions this, this sin of anger. And I would have to say, in my experience, I think in the last three or four years, uh, I've become aware of just how uh, anger as a sin seems to uh, have a grip upon the souls of Far too many of God's professing people. I've seen it more and more. I'm certainly not immune to it myself, but it's been a grief pastorally to see how many angry professing Christians there are. And it, and it calls into question your profession, not if you're wrestling against anger, but if you're just a perpetually and despairingly angry person. Then there's a propensity to murmur or complain. I know people, he says, they're very uncomfortable people to live with, who are always grumbling at everything they meet with in this world. 
they're, they're, they're never pleased. They're never content. There's uh, a little too much salt here, he says, or a little too much pepper there. What a noise they make about such trifles. Their very garments are never to their minds. The weather never suits them. It's awfully hot or it's dreadfully cold. They go through the world murmuring at everything. There are men who think that this is no sin, but if it be a virtue to be thankful and contented, it is certainly a vice to be forever rebellious and discontented with our lot and at daggers drawn with every little thing that crosses our pathway. I do not suppose, he says, there's any person in this assembly who ever has stronger fits of depression of spirits than I have myself personally. I feel at times when I've come into this pulpit that instead of addressing you cheerfully, I could be a very Jeremiah with tears and sorrows. I scarce know why, but so it is. These constitutional mischiefs will happen to us. So he's confessing here that he has a constitutional inclination to to melancholy perhaps and he could give way then to this complaining and bitter and murmuring and resentful spirit but will he give way no in the name of god i dare not say it i must contend against it lest if i should speak murmuringly i should set an ill example unto others so we we're thinking then of of fairly common battles today anger complaining covetousness again uh, these are these are sins that, that Spurgeon seems to be picking up a great deal in his preaching at this time and, and I do think having said what I've said about sins like uh, perhaps uh, lust or vulgarity or whatever it may be it's it's good for us if we're preachers not just to uh, to press against the the obvious sins if you will but to make sure that we cover a range of transgressions so that we are putting our finger on the hearts of many and not just on the hearts of those who it, it's, it's easiest to point at. So here we are with, with covetousness. Do as the good man did who had resolved to give a pound to some good cause and the devil tempted him not to do it. Said he, I'll give two now. The devil said, no, you'll be ruining yourself with your contributions. So he said, I'll give four. Another temptation came, and he said, I'll give eight. And if the devil doesn't leave off tempting me, I do not know to what lengths I shall go, but I will be master of him somehow. So this is the, the response that he's recommending to those who are not just now, again, falling into fits of covetousness, but the habitual graspers and misers, the people who never do anything but count their pennies, not to give any of them out, but to keep them to themselves, who are constantly afraid that by giving they would be losers. Do anything then, my brothers, rather than let the golden calf run after, run over you. Who can be a baser slave, he asks, than he who bows his neck to the mammon God? Do you live as if the world were made for you and for none besides, to get, to hoard, but never to enjoy? He who loves not others is himself unblessed. He says, that may not be your problem, but what about if pride is in the ascendancy? Pride and arrogancy are an abomination to the Lord. Know ye not that the lofty looks of a man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness, that is to say the arrogant bearing of men, shall be bowed down in that day when the Lord alone is exalted. And again, we, we find this so often in our dealings with one another as Christians, and certainly in, in pastoral dealings, uh, people who just will not be crossed, people who will not in any way bow to any authority other than that of their own heart, even if they're professing to honour Christ. 
Uh, people who have strategies by which they always seem to get their own way. Now, says Spurgeon, I do not say that you are no Christian because you occasionally forget the lowliness of heart and modesty of demeanor that become you. Here he is again, carefully and pastorally saying, yes, some of you will battle with this sin, and that's a different thing. But I do say that if pride reigns over you, and you tell me that you cannot help being proud, that you cannot be it, then you cannot be an heir of heaven. For if pride is your master, then Christ is not. And if pride reigns in your spirit and fashions your character, depend upon it, Jesus Christ will despise your image. So uh, here again, he's, he's emphasizing that these are people who have basically accepted, this is the way I am. This is just the way I've been put together. This is my character, and you cannot and should not expect me to be any different to the way I am. They are settled in their sin. They are not fighting it. They have found a way to accept it. And then the dominant sin of many who profess and call themselves Christians is sloth, downright idleness. They have said to themselves, soul, take your ease, and their faculties are dormant, they, they pass their lives as if asleep. They never do anything for Christ. Their hands are folded. Their heart is sluggish. Their talents hid. They have no zeal, no love for souls. Pleasures, profits and private gratifications take the place of duty and service. They like comfort, comfort remarkably much. But as to their ever enlisting in Christ's army, it is not to be expected of them. They are an inglorious neuter to the church. And again, he acknowledges sometimes slothful. That's not the issue. We all have to contend with this disease. But the man in whom sloth rules cannot be a child of God, because if sin has dominion over you, then you are not yet in the kingdom of grace. And again, we will, we will think of people who have any number of reasons to, uh, to sit on their hands, any number of reasons to, to do what they would like in, in terms perhaps of material pursuits, but when it comes to, to spiritual labor, they have no appetite for it. So this, he says, is the way to test yourself. Be honest enough to subject yourself to self-examination. But, he says, I want to, having taken it as a painful test, look at it in a more pleasant or hopeful view, consider this as a promise. To every true believer, the promise is, sin shall not have dominion, over you. It doesn't say that sin shall not dwell in you. It doesn't say that sin won't battle with you. The believer may fall into the sin that he hates and defile his garments with uncleanness that he loathes. Let a sheep tumble into a ditch and it scrambles out again, but let the swine go there and it rolls in the ditch, for the mire has dominion over its nature. So the sheep struggles when it's in the ditch, but the swine wallows when it's in the ditch. And that's the distinction. Now, he says, I want you to look at the reason why sin shall not have dominion over you. I want you to take this uh, particular promise to heart. Sin cannot get confirmed dominion over the child of God because God has promised that it shall not. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Oh, how I love these shalls, says Spurgeon. There seems something grand in them. If there were no other promise in the Bible but this, and I knew no more theology than that promise teaches me, I'd be most happy. Sin shall not have dominion. Oh, my God, if you say it shall not, then I know it shall not. Has he said, and shall he not do it? 
Has he promised it and shall it not stand good? If you trust in Jesus Christ before sin can ever fully rule over you, God's promise must be broken and beloved, that can never be. Now, another reason, and Spurgeon says this isn't even the main reason that's in the text, but I want you to to broaden it out. I want you to get a better sense of some of these things. Another reason is sin shall not have dominion over you because you belong to Christ and he brought you at, bought you at such a price that I'm sure he will never lose you. As a believer, you're Christ's purchased possession. Do you think he'll permit evil to come and run away with the heritage that he bought at such a price? Never, says Spurgeon. The Holy Spirit also has come to dwell in you. The, the, the Holy Ghost is dwelling in you as a king within his palace. Christ is more supreme than Satan. It's a hard struggle for you and Satan, but between the Holy Ghost and the adversary is an easy war. Then the Holy Ghost has begun a good work in you, and it's his rule never to leave his work unfinished. Philippians 1 verse 6, the work which his wisdom begin, begins, Spurgeon's half quoting a hymn, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen, and never was forfeited yet. It shall not be said of the Holy Spirit, as we say of foolish builders, that they began to build but were not able to finish. And then in every Christian, there's a new nature, a nature which cannot die and which cannot sin, a living, incorruptible seed, Peter calls it. It's, it's there, and so sin shall not have dominion over you. And then specifically, as a Christian, your will is not the slave of sin and never has been since your conversion. You sin, he says, yes, but if you could, you never would sin. To will is present with you. The bent and bias of your mind are towards righteousness if you're a Christian indeed. And if that's so, sin never can get dominion over your whole nature. For the sovereignty of all your manhood lies with him who possesses the mastery of your will and your affections. So if there's a man who's fallen into sin, but still his heart cries out against the sin, if he's saying, Lord, I'm in captivity to it, I'm under bondage to it, oh, that I could be free from it, then sin does not have dominion over you, nor shall it destroy you, but you shall be set free before long. Again, you see the importance of understanding the difference between reigning sin and remaining sin. The man who shrugs off his sin, the man who excuses his sin, the man who makes an ally of his sin, the man who overlooks his sin, that's the man under the dominion of sin. But the man who longs to be free of it, that's the man who is actually fighting it. And then, says Spurgeon, you've got the reason in the text. You are not under the law, but under grace. And he says, now this is important, and it's not immediately easy to grasp. Two principles in the world that are supposed to promote holiness. This is the way he's expounding the text. This is where he's really getting to grips with the meaning. The first is the principle of law and duty. The other, the principle of grace and faith. And he says there are lots of people who are persuaded that if you just tell people what they ought to do, prove to them the authority or the lawgiver, and show them the penalty of their wrongdoing, that this will enlighten their judgment, give a just bias to their inclination, and materially or practically help to keep their conduct right. And Spurgeon says that is nonsense, and the history of mankind goes to show that this pretext is without proof. Those who are under the law are always under sin. 
And he goes on then to try and explain what this means. He, he uses the various examples of, of Eve or, or our own children or, or, or somebody in, uh, who reads their Bible and is provoked to the very sin that is forbidden. The moment we're commanded not to do a thing, he says, such is our perverse disposition. We try to do it. Men who are under the law through the, the naughtiness, uh, the wickedness of human nature, always get to be under sin too. He says it's a, it's a, it's, it's a terrible thing. He uses a, quite a comical illustration, but, but an, a, a very potent one. He said there's a new crime that's recently been discovered a communication in railway carriages between passengers and guard, and nobody must pull the rope unless there's sufficient reason for stopping the train. If you travel on uh, trains in the UK, there's a there's a, a button near most of the doors, or, or sometimes there used to be a, a chain again that you used to be able to pull in the older trains. But it says, yeah, do not touch in case of emergency. It's like walking past a fire alarm, and you sort of think, oh, I just everything in you wants to push the button. Well, why is that? Spurgeon says that's your heart problem. It's, it's, it's not going to do the work. But then there's another principle, a different principle altogether, steadfastly believed by some of us to be fruitful in every good word and work, a main instigator to righteousness and true holiness. This, says Spurgeon, is the principle of grace on the part of God, operating by faith in the heart of man. And it works like this. Grace does not say to a man, you must do this or you shall be punished. But it says this, God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you all your sins. You are saved. Heaven is yours and you shall enter into the bliss of the angels before long. Now, for the love you bear to God who has done this for you, what will you do for him? This, he says, does not appear to furnish at first sight a very powerful motive, but it's been proved in the history of Christ's church to be the most potent creator of virtue that was ever heard of. Dissolved by mercy unmerited and grace unexpected, we surrender ourselves to God. And because, he says, we're not under the law, here's his reasoning, as Christian people, God doesn't say to us, do this and I will save you and don't do that and I will damn you. But he says to us, I have saved you beyond the fear of damnation. You are mine, my children, my favourites. Now, what will you do for me? This, says Spurgeon, is the motive power. This, the irresistible instinct of love and gratitude that sin shall never get dominion over you. Even if the Lord did make good servants, and it never does, yet it could never make so good a servant as grace and love. Indeed, the motive of love is always the strongest. And if it came to the pinch and your man who serves you for your pay could make more out of betraying you than he could by being faithful to you, you know what he would do. But that servant who serves you out of love would no more think of going beyond or imposing upon you than of sacrificing himself. Love then, says Spurgeon, love is the mighty principle. You Christian people are not under the law. It's true the moral law is your rule of life but it has no tyrannous government over you. Notice that really helpful distinction. The moral law is your rule of life, but it is not of tyrannous government. Christ has fulfilled the law for you. It has been kept. You owe it no obedience as a matter of mere justice. You've been delivered from that and being now under the law of love and not under the law of force and duty, sin never shall have dominion over you. 
So here's Spurgeon. He's no antinomian. That is, he's not a rejecter of the law. It's our rule of life. All Ten Commandments are written upon the heart of the renewed believer. But it's a, a rule that is our delight rather than uh, our, our judge and our executioner. And he says, my time has gone and, and so has ours nearly. But he does want us to take the text as an encouragement. And as so often, you can almost uh, hear him just not ticking off or checking off in a casual sense his last headings, but but just wanting to make sure that we we get the the the, the goodness that he's been labouring for on our behalves. He wants us to take the text thirdly as an encouragement. Remember the first, the test. If sin really has dominion over me, then I'm not a child of God. Then a promise. If I am a child of God, then sin will not have dominion over me. And now an encouragement. And he's talking here to to particular classes of people, applying his text in these different ways. There are not a few here, he says, who are strangers to the holy jealousy which keeps a watch over the heart and a guard upon the lips lest they should sin. I wish we were all so on the alert that we all kept our garments scrupulously white. Dear brothers, he pleads, cultivate a holy jealousy. Be very watchful and let this text animate you that sin shall not have dominion over you. If you believe this, he says, you're a child of God, then keep a jealous watch over your own heart. Then an encouragement for the weak. Though you may be very weak if you're a child of God, sin shall no more get dominion over the weak than over the strong. Yes, you may feel that uh, your remaining sin is vigorous and active. You may find your own grace to be uh, seemingly very frail. But though the life within you is but a spark, it shall not be quenched. Though it be but as a bruised reed, it shall not be broken. An encouragement for the weak. Sin shall not have dominion over you. He's good at this. He, He just picks up the key language of his text and he hammers it home almost as the conclusion of each of his points. Then what of those who are fighting with some great sin? It talks about a man praying in the in the meeting. Oh God, help me or I shall fall. Help me or I shall fall. He says you know what it is when you get to hand-to-hand fighting with some inbred corruption. You that have not strong passions, he says, you might be very thankful. For they that have a lusty manhood are often drifted by terrible winds and have a hard fight to keep clear of the rocks of sin. But oh, you warring Christians, you believers who are fighting, here is consolation for you. Put this bottle of cool water to your lips and be refreshed. Sin shall not have dominion over you. You shall conquer yet. Fight on. Then what of those who are lately converted, recently become Christians? He says to them, cling to the cross, lay hold of your dear Lord and Master's skirts. He means the the hem of his garment. For if you trust him, though you may be young, though you may have those old habits hanging around you, as it were, remember that sin shall not have dominion over you. And what if you're a backslider? You've gone into sin. You've awfully defiled your garments. Perhaps the church of God has even had to cast you out. Are you hating your sin now? Are you crying to God for mercy? Are you looking to the cross by God's grace and resting in the work of Jesus? If so, be of good courage. If you've become a renewed repenter, then remember that sin may get the advantage, but it shall never again have the dominion. To have sinned very terribly is an awful thing, God have mercy upon you. You may have to go with broken bones all your life, but you shall be saved. And then, as so often, 
a word for those who want to be saved, not from remaining sin, but from reigning sin. If sin is now domineering over you, if you just come to Christ as the Lord and master of his people, if you put your trust in our Savior, then God will take care to deliver you altogether from sin, beginning the good work in you this very moment and carrying it on till at last he brings that crying for mercy sinner to heaven without spot or stain to see the face of God. This for every one of you who will trust in Christ. Spurgeon then concludes with a with a, another appeal that God might be uh, would be ready to save all those who put their faith in Jesus. I trust that's been a, a blessing to you. Uh, we hopefully will be back again in a future week with overwhelming obligations. That's sermon nine hundred and ten, uh, and that's our next week's featured sermon. It's sermons 906 to 912 if you're reading along with us. I hope you will do so. You can follow us at Reading Spurgeon. You can find this podcast and the uh, the newsletter that goes out with the weekly sermon text uh, and other bits and pieces, including some other wonderful resources at mediagratii.org slash podcasts. And as ever, I'm told that if you're willing to leave a, a good review on your favourite podcast app, it makes such a difference to us, especially if you're living outside the United States. really helps us to make sure uh, that this podcast can, can get to where it needs to get to and, uh, and boosts us, uh, helps us to do what we're doing and to do it well. So thanks very much for that. Thank you for listening today, and I hope you'll join us again in the future. God bless you until then. Goodbye.